Please open your book of praise to the page 520. And the sermon this morning is based on what the Lord God teaches us in His Word, what we hear confess about His justice. So in the Catechism, this is the last of three Lord's Days in the section on our sin and misery. And we know our sin and misery from the law of God. We realize we are inclined by nature not to keep it. God did not create us that way. It came from the fall into sin. But now we have four questions in Lord's Day 4 to try and get out of the punishment that ought to come to us. Here they are. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No. For God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, Galatians 3, verse 10. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the providence of God, it turns out that using Lord's Day 4 in the morning service is very helpful as a preparation for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. At the beginning of the form for the Lord's Supper that we'll read this afternoon, we are encouraged and admonished to examine ourselves as the proper way to personally come to the table. And we need to acknowledge that of ourselves we are sinners. And we need to truly believe when we come to the table that Jesus died to cover all those sins. And because of that, our lives are committed in service to God. Now you may right away recognize that those are the three parts of the catechism, sin, salvation, and service. That comes from the book of Romans, the very structure of it. And here in Lord's Day 4, we're in the sin section. So it's appropriate for the first part of self-examination, the whole path of self-examination from sin to believing in salvation and committing yourself to service starts with the sin question, and Lord's Day 4 is the Lord's Day that doesn't let us just get away with it and say, we don't really have a sin problem. Because if we don't really have a sin problem, then we don't really need to hold on to salvation in Jesus Christ. And if we don't really have salvation in Jesus Christ, why are we committing ourselves to serve Him after all? You see? So Lord's Day 4 comes up with these three questions that are asked by the human heart the sinner's heart, in an effort to say, no, God, we don't need to go down this whole path of Jesus dying on the cross, of you pouring out all this wrath. 
why don't you just realize that you're asking of us something we can't do. You're asking sinners to keep a law that was made for non-sinners. It doesn't work. That's the first question. Isn't God doing something unjust? We can't keep this. The second question says, well, isn't God just going to... Why doesn't He just let it go unpunished? Why do you need punishment? Is, is God a God of vengeance who just wants to punish all the time? Why doesn't He just let it go? That would seem easy. And once that evasive question is answered, the last one is, okay, so you say God can't just let it go, but don't you also believe that God is merciful? Yes, but he's also just. And you've got to hold all these things together in the proper way so that you get the whole overall biblical message about sin. And at the end of the day, you humble yourself before God. So the scriptural message is what I've sought to summarize with a theme that God justly holds us responsible for sin. God justly holds us responsible for sin because we threw away the tools in deliberate disobedience. So we'll look at those three questions. The deliberate choice, the just judgment of God, so the deliberate choice of ours, the just judgment of God, and the eternal punishment that ought to follow. So first of all, the deliberate choice. The question is, does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? And the answer is no, for God so created man that he was able to do it. So if God gave a command and said, till the garden, be stewards of my creation, Fill the earth and multiply. Don't eat of the tree. Every single one of those commands we could obey. He gave us a mind to understand what the commands meant and to recognize the truth in them. He gave us a will and a heart that said, Amen and yes, we will do what God has said. And He gave us desires that said, this way of God is holy, it is pure, it is splendid, it is beautiful, it is the way of life. And that's how we were created. We were created to love God. And that love of God was to come out of a heart that understood the difference between obedience and disobedience, at least insofar as they are, the one is obeying God and the other isn't. We had not experienced what disobedience was, but we understood the words and the meaning. And out of that, God gave us the freedom to either choose to obey or choose not to obey. We had a will that was free. And so we were equipped to serve God. You can recognize that from Genesis chapters 1 through 3 in the way that God holds us responsible for the sin. And that summarized to you that God created man, that he was able to do it. But now when it says man at the instigation of the devil, just means the devil started it with the suggestion, which we in our mind should have recognized and said no to, and in our heart should have revolted against and said never. But we didn't do that. What did we do? In deliberate disobedience. Now, the word deliberate is um, 
is a really nice word to describe what happened. Sometimes we use the word deliberate. Um, you might say to your child, you deliberately disobeyed in the sense that they thought all about it, they knew exactly what you wanted, knew exactly what you didn't want, and then chose to do exactly what you didn't want. Deliberate disobedience. Now, what's that come from? Day comes from the word from or out of, and libera, you recognize liberate or liberation or liberated. And it really means then out of freedom man chose. So in deliberate disobedience is a disobedience chosen out of the freedom of that created nature which was able to serve God. It had the freedom to love God and give God the kind of love that God wanted. Not the love of a robot, but the love of a human being. And out of the freedom of the choice to obey or not obey, we chose not to obey. It wasn't just because Adam and Eve were little children and didn't know what the consequences would be. When God said, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die, they understood what the words meant. And they chose to disobey. They rationalized, thought about the consequences and listened to the devil who said, no, it's not really like that. God's just holding you down so that you can't become big and great like he is. And our sinful heart, or our hearts, which were not sinful, chose to listen. Out of freedom, we made a choice. And so then, when you understand it that way, then you begin to understand this really unique language at the end of answer four, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. How do you rob yourself? Have you ever robbed yourself? Um, take your own money? Uh, or you'd have to take your money and throw it away or give it to somebody else. Here, the meaning of it goes like this. If, if I hire you for my new construction company and your resume says, 10 years of experience in framing, and I call up the delivery company, they bring all the lumber and the trusses, and you have your own crew, and you say, and, and, I, and I even park a trailer there, and it's got all the power tools in it and everything, and I say, okay, what's reasonable here? A couple weeks, and you're going to have this house framed. All right, great. Go to it. And two weeks later, I come back, and what do I find? I find that you with your crew have taken all this wood chopped it up and made a really nice fire, burned the power tools in the fire, and uh, roasted marshmallows. What can I say? Can I say, you should build that house for me? You should have built it for me? I gave you all the tools? I gave you all the materials? Absolutely. And to rob yourself and all your descendants of these gifts is to do that very kind of thing, to have all the things necessary to serve God and to make a beautiful house, as it were, to make creation beautiful and lead the whole creation to the glory and splendor of God and to take the gifts that are needed for that and misuse them for some other purpose. God can come back to us then and still keep on demanding what he demanded in the first place, which is obey the law I gave you. I made you able to keep it. It's not my fault that you, in deliberate disobedience, chose another path. So I'm going to keep on demanding what I demanded from you in the beginning. And here's the good thing about that. If God would say to you and to me, okay, so you all sinned, 
you don't have the materials, you don't have the tools, okay, no more house, from now on, you can just sit there and roast marshmallows. That would be like God saying, you know, I really, all I made you for was to roast marshmallows. But he didn't, you see. He made us to build this magnificent mansion, as it were. And God, in acknowledging his own work, keeps demanding of us the product, the results that he demanded in the beginning. And in a sense, that's God saying, you and your sin are not made for sin. You were made for something better. And I'm going to keep demanding the better from you so that you will realize that sin is not where you're supposed to be. I made you for something better. And so God's going to keep on demanding the good thing. And then he doesn't let us say that it's his fault. The scriptures say in James chapter 1 that we read that God cannot be tempted by evil. The wording there has the sense of, um, let's say you want to throw spears and arrows at God, but he is so covered in armor that they cannot even penetrate. And that's, that's sort of how evil is to God. It cannot even penetrate into his heart to think evil, to desire evil for you. What does James say instead in chapter 1? So he says, God cannot be tempted by evil. That's a categorical statement. It is not possible for God to be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. What a perfect commentary on Genesis chapter 3, that verse 15. Desire, she saw that the fruit was good to eat and desired it. It was desirable for eating, it says in Genesis. And then took it, and the desire then itself, already beginning its way into sin, gives birth to sin, and what's the result? Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. The day you eat it, you'll surely die. And so, the sin is from our side, and it's by our choice. And then, therefore, you also have to say that the sin of Satan and the rebellion of Satan before our sin was also by his choice. God created him with all the gifts necessary for serving God, and he in his heart decided that it would be worthwhile to try and challenge God for the throne. And so, brothers and sisters, here we are today. We are a people who are fallen, but God created us able to do it, and he keeps demanding the same. And in fact, we don't have a freedom of choice that makes us able to choose the good on our own. We have so enslaved ourselves to sin, and God constructed the world in such a way that one act of disobedience altered our whole nature and moved us over into choosing sin. And yet we still have the capacity to choose. We, have the, we still have a will. What does our will do? It chooses. But what does it choose? It always chooses the sinful way when it's left to itself. 
So we're still choosing. We're still human beings. We still have a heart and a will. But we're choosing sin time and time again. And confirming the very fact that we robbed ourselves and our descendants of all these gifts. So we cannot blame God. He made us without a flaw and He justly requires from us what He expected from us in the beginning because He made us able to obey Him and serve Him freely. So let's, let's begin with that point then and say, no, God is not doing us an injustice by requiring in His law about what we cannot do. In fact, we can turn this into a positive thing and say the fact that He requires from us what we cannot do continually reminds us that He made us for something better and that's where we want to get back to, but the way to get back to there is to go through the cross of Christ and forward to the new creation. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing that God keeps requiring what we cannot do. So as we're humbled before God, admitting indeed that He justly holds us responsible for sin because we threw away the tools in deliberate disobedience, still the heart asks another question. And so that's the next question and answer. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? In other words, can't God just let it go? Well, can't God just let it go? Isn't that resound with a lot of advice that comes to parents these days? I mean, your children disobey. They even do it in deliberate disobedience and they throw a temper tantrum and they lie on the floor and they kick their legs and they yell and scream and they get blue in the face because they're so angry. And what are you supposed to do? Well, you need to redirect their energy. You need to find them some new um, outlet. And it's probably... Uh, your fault as a parent because, well, kids are basically good and, you know, you're just not helping bring out the goodness in your child and, well, you know, they can't really help it either, so you shouldn't punish them. And then you see the, the result when instead of the parents guiding the children through life, it's the children who are running the show and uh, giving mom all kinds of trouble in the grocery store. Well, this is the kind of question here. Wouldn't God just let it go unpunished? There doesn't have to be a follow-up for every wrong. Well, it is a disobedience and it is an apostasy. What's appropriate for disobedience and apostasy? Well, number one, the thing that's appropriate according to God, is whatever he said. And what did he say in Genesis 2, verse 17? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a threat. And if as a parent, you make a threat and you say, but if you do that, you'll be grounded for a week. Or whatever you might say. What happens if you don't follow through? Then your children say, Oh, they never mean it anyways. We can just go ahead and do it. It won't make any difference. Oh, maybe they'll get mad for a while, but then it just passes. And they never follow through with their threats. Well, parenting manuals will say, if you make a threat, 
if you say this will follow if that happens. If you say this is the good you will receive if you do this, this is the punishment you will receive if you do that, on the other hand, then you must follow through. You have to follow through. Well, God in Genesis 2 verse 17 said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And God has to follow through. Otherwise, he's not God. Who, what, what kind of God is there who, who makes this threat and then looks the other way when it actually, when you fulfill the conditions that would bring about the threatened thing? To deny his word is to deny himself. I mean, if the Lord says something, what is this whole Bible but God speaking to us and what do we expect God to do? Stand by every word he has said. And if you can't trust God to stand by his word, then you can't trust his word at all. You can't trust him. He has to stand by his word. He can't just let it go. He's terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sin. So original sin, the sin in Adam that we're all counted to have participated in because Adam represents us all just like Prime Minister Trudeau represents us all if he says Canada is now at war with somebody then we're all at war. Adam represents us all, and he decides, together with his wife, to disobey. That's original sin. And the result is, there's a fundamental change in your being and in your heart, in your mind. You still have a heart and a mind, but now it's all aimed towards pleasing yourself and not towards pleasing God. And God is terribly displeased with that. Shouldn't he be displeased that we robbed ourselves of the great and wonderful gifts he gave us? Of course. And if God hasn't changed and God remains holy, then every time you commit an actual sin and add to the, the guilt you have before God, he should be more and more terribly displeased. And so we say he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally as he has declared. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You have to do everything God commands without fail. He positively commands you to tremble at his word, then you should tremble at his word. If he negatively commands you not to commit adultery, then you shouldn't even in your heart desire any kind of adultery. And so, God says that we must abide by all things written in the book of the law. We must do them. Galatians 3, verse 10. It's quoted in the Catechism, and it's taken right from Deuteronomy 27. Verse 26, where the Lord is giving his people his bl promised blessings for obedience and his promised curses for disobedience. And everyone must do the things of, written in the law, and if not, they are cursed. Now, what is a curse? A curse is when God speaks a word of, that is negative to you. If a curse is put on you, then from God, this, these words are put on you, which coming to fruition will lead to your destruction, ultimately to suffering in hell. So even if God wanted to let our sin go and wanted to forget about it, he would have to contend with his own word. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. He made a true threat of punishment. He will not change his mind, and he's not about to change his mind about the proper results of sin. 
can remind you of one other verse in that connection. Romans 6, verse 23, and you know it. The wages of sin is death. It's on a wages principle. It's the proper reward for sin. Sin, here's your reward, here's your prize. Sorry, but it's death. That's proper. But the free gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ. Notice how that's not earned. That's a gift. We'll get to that more in a moment, but let's look at the third question yet. Is God not also merciful? So we've seen that he should require what we cannot do because we're responsible for destroying ourselves and destroying our ability to do it. He shouldn't just let disobedience and apostasy go unpunished because he'd deny his own word. Now we'll see more about him. He would be denying his own nature even if he would just let it go on account of being a merciful God. Now we could ask ourselves, doesn't mercy triumph over judgment? And here's where I want to make more use of James chapter 2. We already saw James chapter 1, God cannot be tempted by evil. But James chapter 2, verse 13, ends with these words, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, doesn't God's mercy then win out over his judgment? Well, we need to read this in its proper context, and it will help us appreciate what it means to sin against the Most High Majesty of God. In James chapter 2, the Apostle James, brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, he opens by warning the congregation about partiality or favoritism. And then he imagines a situation, and I think it would be best to imagine a settled congregation like this with visitors coming in to see, you know, what is this new synagogue, as it were? What are they proclaiming as these people who came out of the Jewish synagogue and are now talking about this Jesus all the time? And they have visitors coming in, and they have a rich man in fine clothes and gold rings on his fingers, and then they all think, wow, this would be great. If we could get this rich man to be convinced that we're nice people and that this is the truth, then that would just lift so much of the persecution. Come on in. We've got a spot for you. You know, whatever you like. Best spot. We'll even move out of the way so you can sit where you want to sit. And then the poor man comes in. He hasn't any clothes to change out of. There, these would have been poor men who were working the fields and getting paid almost nothing. We uh, have James writing against some of those rich people who didn't pay the wages to these farmers and they were really, really suffering. And they come in and everyone thinks, whew, they smell like the barn. Better put them back in the corner somewhere. And James says that's partiality and he furthermore identifies such partiality as sin. He says it in verse, verse 9. So verse 8, you, show, you love your neighbor as yourself, good. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. And when you commit sin, you're convicted by the law as transgressors. And then he goes on to say, whoever would keep the whole law but stumble at one point is guilty of all. So imagine us as the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do love the law of the Lord, don't we? And we come to church to worship God. 
but then when someone comes in, we show this kind of favoritism and we put the poor man off in the corner and the rich man gets the best spot and everybody talks to the rich man and everybody ignores the poor man off the street. That's sin. And James says to us as church, says it to the church of all ages, if that sort of thing is happening, you can say that you're keeping the law of God and you all dressed in your Sunday best, but you're breaking the law on one point partiality or favoritism and if you break the law on one point you've broken it all now sometimes people try to add that up and say I can figure this out for you if you if you lusted for another woman then you were also stealing the woman in your heart and you wanted to murder her husband like David and Uriah anyway you try to add it all up to prove that breaking one commandment means breaking them all but that's not what James is saying because he says in verse 11, verse, verse 10 says, you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. For, here's his explanation why, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. The point is he who said. It is the lawgiver. Against whom have you sinned when you break one commandment? You've sinned against the lawgiver who gave all the rest of the commandments too. And so you can say, I kept all the rest, but just God can overlook this partiality. No, he's just. You sin against one, you've broken the whole thing because there's a matter of principle here. That's also, by the way, why God in Genesis 2 verse 17 can say, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And all he does is set up one little command, which is very easy to break in a sense, but it's also very easy to determine whether it's broken. Did they eat of it or did they not? They did. Okay. In doing so, they can't say, but we're working on all the rest of the things you, you told us. Can you just overlook this? God says, no. When you ate of it, you didn't just break a command. You rejected me, the lawgiver. And that's the point of James here as well. And so we come to this phrase in the Catechism about sinning against the most high majesty of God as a matter of principle this is the God you're dealing with the God who is all-powerful who knows absolutely everything who is present everywhere who is always existing he's the infinite God not contained by any boxes or boundaries or limits this is the infinite God and his majesty is the highest majesty you could ever encounter and when you sin against him, no matter how little or big the commandment is, what you are doing is thumbing your nose at God, sneering at him as the lawgiver and the judge and saying, so what if you said it? I can do this if I want to. And that's more than sinning against a fellow human being, and it's infinitely worse. Now, the way to understand on a human level how this could be so different is just to think for a moment of what it means to to deal with the law and particularly with a police officer who is doing his duty or her duty and to kill a police officer it was a few years ago there's a constable Garrett Stiles making a routine police check of a van at about 10 to 5 in the morning and he stopped behind it and found four youths in the vehicle this is near Ottawa and he ran the vehicle's license plate and realized it wasn't licensed to any of those youth. So he reached in for the keys. As he did it, the van suddenly accelerated, snagged the officer, and dragged him 30 meters. No, 30, 300 meters. 
and the van rolled over him, it pinned him down, and it killed him. He died in hospital of his injuries. Now, under the criminal code of Canada, killing a police officer with or without intent, and I'm sure those youth didn't intend to kill him, they just wanted to get away, and then once it started going wrong, they, they were probably in a panic, but they get charged with automatic first-degree murder as if they had been at home, got together, schemed it, and then carried it out. Why is that? It's because he's a police officer doing his duty. There's a greater charge because of the special office of the police officer. He's not just another civilian. We have asked him to keep the law and enforce the peace. Well, ratchet up now to God. You can't really ratchet up because it's infinite. Infinite God, majestic, holy, righteous, greater than Nebuchadnezzar who said, is this not great Babylon that I have built? And greater than Herod who took pride in the people saying, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. They insulted the most high majesty of God, it says in the book of Acts. And, and actually it says Herod did because he didn't give glory to God. And these then did more obviously what every single human being has done in Adam, our representative, were guilty of throwing away the righteousness God gave us by misusing our freedom of choice. We're all enslaved to sin. We're under a just judgment. And because this is the person we sinned against, this is the lawgiver, one sin means you break all, but also you have incurred the righteous condemnation of one who is infinite in glory and majesty and power, and what are you? Are you equally infinite in glory, majesty, and power? You're not even infinite at all. And your majesty, glory, and power are like nothing. And so here you are, this little pipsqueak of an ant saying to the great God, Oh yeah, I can do this. And the Lord says no. And what you bring on yourself then is this punishment that is infinite in extent. Now the only way in finite being can bear an infinite punishment is to put it against the whole of them, not just their body, but also their soul, and extend it out forever and ever. What's that? Eternal punishment in hell. And so, brothers and sisters, we've worked through these three questions and answers. We've seen how they reflect the Word of God, particularly this time in the book of James, the letter of James. And now we have to humble ourselves before the Lord. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper this afternoon, right at that first point, are we a sinner? As we read through the form this afternoon, I hope you will be fully focused at that point already, early in the form, where we have to confess that in ourselves we are by nature sinners and subject to wrath and so on. And you won't try and step aside that from that, and you won't think of somebody else when we read the form at that point and think, oh yeah, boy, I sure hope they're listening right now. No, we will each, with our own heart, personally prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table by fully admitting, yes, we have sinned, God is just, what we deserve is an eternal punishment. And so you will come before the Lord and repent of your sin. That's what repentance is, taking ownership, acknowledging you are at fault, not accusing God, 
And then it will lead to asking God for his gracious forgiveness. And this, brothers and sisters, is where this whole section of the catechism is meant to lead. This is where it has to lead us this morning. This is where it's bringing us this afternoon to the table of the Lord, where the Lord God presents to us the evidence that he has sent his own son. And his own son bore an infinite wrath. He was able to do so. He couldn't sustain it just in his human nature, but he was perfectly joined with divine nature. And God in himself then bears the punishment we deserve. And for every true Christian, that has to just sink into your heart and pierce it so much that you are just astonished, time and time again, astonished that God did this for you. Why? Why does God keep caring for a creation that's so turned away from Him? Well, God has His plan. God has His wisdom. God knows what He wants to make of it in the end. And He's going to get there. The way to get there is also through your repentance and through your grasping of the Lord Jesus Christ who bore that infinite wrath for you. And so then you see in the cross of Christ, God didn't deny His judgment, His justice, and He didn't deny His mercy either. He fully acknowledged his justice by pouring out his wrath, but he fully showed his mercy in giving his own son to receive that wrath. God is merciful. God is just. There's no place you can see it better than the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's where the glory of God blazes forth in the most brilliant way. He bore an infinite wrath. And Christ submitted to a judgment without mercy so that you could receive mercy. He submitted to a judgment without mercy. And he pressed his whole self into God's service in pure freedom. He chose obedience and he kept the law for you. And Jesus Christ is the one in whom mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, if God's people will but live the way that James says here and would show mercy to the poor man by admitting him to the good place in the church and and acknowledging him just as fully as any other person, then that mercy that they show will correlate with mercy that they will be shown in the judgment as they seek to keep the whole law of God out of faith and as evidence of their faith. Mercy in the end triumphs over judgment. Well, brothers and sisters, the mercy of God triumphs over the judgment that comes to you, but only because Jesus Christ bore the judgment justly and fully. So let us this afternoon celebrate the Lord's Supper with that in our hearts, joyful and thankful that Jesus Christ is fully paid for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Amen.